Hello and welcome to Reflex Point, your weekly podcast where we review and discuss the series Robotech one episode at a time. We're your hosts, Major Medina. And I'm Paul Marquez. And this week, we are starting the show off by welcoming a very special guest. Today's guest cut her performing teeth at the famous Knott's Berry Farms Birdcage Theater. She has studied at two world-renowned acting institutions. She has appeared on stage and on screen. She was a writer for the Digimon series for several seasons. She's a podcaster, a blogger, as well as the founder of the inspiring website, babyboomster.com. And all of this has been in addition to her incredible voiceover career, where she has brought to life hundreds of characters, not the least of which was as Robotech's very own Lynn Minmay. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our sincere honor to welcome the supremely talented Rebecca Forstadt. Rebecca, <laughs> welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be on here. It's always great to talk to people that like Robotech. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, we, we, we do have a Robotech podcast, so I think we qualify as people who like Robotech. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably putting it very mildly. <laughs> yeah, so, this is great. We we do have so many questions, but I, I really wanted to start off with uh, with your inspiration. I, I know you began acting in high school and and you were a theater major in college, but what what first drew you to acting? Well, it's sort of in my blood. My uh, my grandmother was in vaudeville, oh. and my father. One, I think he wanted to be an actor at one time when he when he um, got out of World War Two, he went to Dallas and was in a little theater company with um, Aaron Spelling, who was the oh, director. Wow. And my dad was one of the leading actors. And that's when both of them were starving. So <laughs> it's just sort of, you know, one of those things. It's kind of funny because I was always sort of on the shy side. I still am. Really? Really? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny how these shy people go into acting, but it's just a way to, you know, get out there and be a little bit crazy, you know, with the, <laughs> especially if you have lines to say. <laughs> well, sure, sure. So because it was in your family, it must have seemed, okay, this is this is a viable thing to do, or was it still, you know, what did your parents think when you said, I want to I wanna major in, in theater and I want to become an actor? Oh, my dad was really excited about it, you know, but also, you know, at the time when I was in high school, it was during a time that was like in the um, late 60s, early 70s. Sure. (laughs) And, you know, they figured, oh, she's probably going to get married to, you know, a nice rich guy and and not have to worry about it. (laughs) So, you know, they didn't really tell me stuff that I really needed to know, like, you know, finish college and, you know, things like that, that, you know. (laughs) Learn, learn a real skill. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up learning some skills later on. Oh, well, come on. Millions of fans are glad you learned those skills. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a different type of time. (laughs) I had mentioned in your uh, intro that that you studied at famous acting institutions and and each of them have very distinct philosophies on on acting. And you yourself are an award winning uh, theater actor. Is there a specific acting method that you lean towards? 
Well, it's really funny when I, when I came to LA after doing melodrama, which is, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, out there, sure. but it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. I it was one of my, it's probably like the most fun job I've ever had. It was, it was great. But, and, and Steve Martin used to work there too and other right. people. So I moved to LA and I, I immediately signed up for Lee Strasberg. Right. And it turned out it was like in a chorus line where you have to go find another class because they thought, you know, I was, I don't know. They just thought I was shallow or something. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Wow. So <laughs> I started studying with a, a really eccentric Polish acting teacher and we were learning uh, what was called like Grotowski method, which is real physical, you know? So we're, we were learning how to do all kinds of handstands and somersaults and just doing a real kind of experimental type of theater. Sure. And he was all. He also combined that with Michael Chekhov, which is a little mm -hmm. bit more. To me, it just it just seemed to be a better fit for me, and you know I think it it worked for me. He, he was more than an acting teacher; it was almost like spiritual in a way. Really, really, and I know the the Chekhov method, you know, focuses on kind of that psychophysical method for acting. Well, I think the difference the difference was is that. Sometimes, um, and I don't want to say anything bad about the method because a lot of people really like it. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes it's people kind of take it and they, they're kind of so into themselves. They're not connecting with other people that I they're see. talking to or, or they're not connecting with the audience. And, uh, Michael Chekhov was more into radiating your presence into the audience and connecting with the person that you were acting with. I mean, because you're performing in front of a group, you have to reach out to the audience. It can't just be all this interior stuff like, you know, if you're angry, pretend you're in a hot jacuzzi or, you know, something <laughs> like that. Or people, <laughs> it was really funny because I, I worked uh, for a while on sets as a wardrobe person also. I kind of came to Hollywood, started studying acting and kind of got... Um, I met a, a director in a parking lot. <laughs> he took me to lunch in Beverly Hills and talked me into to working on a movie as a wardrobe person on a show that had it was called the it was the story of Brigham Young, sure. which is a Mormon um, the story. But it it took place, you know, every single scene was in a different date and time and you know with 300 extras and i was the only wardrobe person oh so, my God. <laughs> for a while until i finally got to bring in one of my friends from high school who used to be one of our prop masters on, in in our high school productions and uh so kind of just jumped into that <laughs> <laughs> and i don't know where i was going from there but anyway i segued off in, into that but um not at all not at all <laughs> We could we could talk all day. That COVID brain, you know, where you're like, <laughs> yeah. where am I? What day is it? My hair is getting gray. <laughs> so you've starred in in feature films, uh, and, and you know, in preparation, I did watch Mugsy's Girls. Oh, you did? Yeah, <laughs> and and I got to tell you, that kind of movie is just right up my alley. Yeah, I think it was I'll fantastic, bet. and your performance was amazing, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, you'd mentioned um, that you worked wardrobe, but you, okay, so you worked wardrobe on, on Hill Street Blues. Yeah, But I you did. also acted on Hill Street Blues. What is that experience like? 
Okay, so what happened was is I was um, I was working as a wardrobe person, and I kept thinking, no, I really want to be an actor. I really want to be an actor, and I have um, you know this wonderful job where I'm at CBS Radford, you know, every day working on this series, making some pretty good money and everything. And I'm thinking, no, I want to be an actor. <laughs> and uh, so um, I, at the time I was married and my husband was working at a job where he wasn't making that much money. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to kick him in the butt. And <laughs> so I quit doing wardrobe. And so it kind of kicked him into working some more. He ended up becoming a camera operator and a gaffer. Oh, wow. But yeah, so I went into, um, I started taking acting classes and stuff. And so I contacted the people that were on Hill Street Blues and The White Shadow. That was the other show that I I worked on and told them I wanted to be an actor. And of course, you know, they wanted, you know, I had to come in and audition and everything. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up getting my SAG cards from uh, both of those shows. They they hired me within a week of each other. Oh, wow. That's uh, actually, it wasn't White Shadow. It was the same producers on Saint Elsewhere. So um, they had moved on to Saint Elsewhere. So they, so I did Hill Street Blues. I did like one line on it. And then, then I did um, Saint Elsewhere and had a, a couple of lines with uh, Ed Bagley Jr. and Howie Mandel, which was really fun. Oh, that's incredible. That got me started. And then I, then I started auditioning and uh, ended up getting Muggsy's Girls, which starred Ruth Gordon and Laura Branigan. And I, you know, it was like a sorority movie <laughs> and I was the nerd in the sorority. <laughs> so doing things like wardrobe, is that, is that like the proverbial foot in the door to, to get these kind of uh, positions? No, no, no not at all. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing um, a production wants to hear is the crew trying to be an actor. <laughs> oh, gotcha. You know, it's like you're either one or the other. But, you know, I at the time I was I was like 30 years old. I mean, it really took me uh, like 28 or 30, something like that before I got my SAG card. Wow. Yeah. How did you make the transition into voice acting? Well, that was pretty easy because of my voice. Yeah. <laughs> It was hard to, um, you know, like I had a commercial agent and stuff and, you know, I'd, mm-hmm. they'd send me out for these these parts and then I'd have this really goofy sounding voice. So it, on camera didn't work as well because I didn't have what they called the Procter and Gamble look at the time, which was really big. Oh, wow. But I did have this great voice. And so right across the hall from where my commercial agent's office was, was this voiceover agent who was one of the top voiceover agents in town. So I ended up being with him for about 25 years until he retired. Wow. And then they kicked me to the curb. (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) no, well, no, it's just only because they weren't doing as much they weren't doing that much animation. They did commercials and stuff, but their their main focus was on spokespeople like Lance Legault and you know all these guys that do the movie trailers. Sure. So um, you know it was just sort of a weird thing. They kind of the the agency itself changed a lot, and they just kind of went in a different direction. <laughs> Is it you that recognized that your voice would match well with voice acting, or or was it someone else telling you, hey, why don't you look into this? what happened was I was, you know, looking for acting jobs in what they, in the trade paper, which at the time was the Hollywood drama log, 
which is now part of Backstage West. But, but that was at the time, that was where you would find auditions. I saw um, an ad, they were looking for somebody that did children's voices. And so I thought, well, that's perfect. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, I could fool uh, telephone solicitors, you know, with my <laughs> voice and just say, you know, my mommy's busy right now. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's in the room with daddy. <laughs> The best, uh, um, we, the, the best we have is no hablo inglés, and then we hang up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so that that just, um, you know, it was kind of, a, it was really a perfect fit for me. And that's where I got the job at, at Intersound, where a Robotech was made. But I was actually working there for, I'm trying to think, it was like a year or two years before Robotech happened. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a whole lot of different animes that I had no idea where they were going. They just kind of went out into the wind because at, at the time, anime wasn't a big deal. You know, sure. in the 60s, there was Speed Racer and um, Kimba the White Lion mm -hmm. and, you know, those types of things. But then it just sort of disappeared. So we didn't really know very much about what anime was. And it's not like now where a lot of the voice actors we're fans. They're anime right. fans, you right. know, they become voice actors. For us, it was, it was a gig, you know? So, yeah. So, so then when Robotech came along and became really, really popular, it was like a big surprise. And then all of a sudden, all this work started coming into the um, United States. Oh, it, wow. Yeah. It wasn't that big of a thing at the time, but there a lot of it. And, it, you know, it took a special skill. So, not everybody could do it because sure. at the time they didn't have uh, some of the technology that they have now. Like when I did Robotech, we had to follow the time code. We had to catch the time code and, you know, to jump in and say our lines. And so we had sure. to really like watch the lips and, and try to get it in there, you know, in, in as few takes as we could. Whereas now they have pro tools and things like that where you can pull and stretch right. and everything. So it makes it a little bit easier. You can, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, you know, it sounded so wooden and everything. Well, it's because you have no idea how hard it was to do. <laughs> Whereas now you could be a little bit more natural. What was your average number of takes you would you would have to go for a line? Um, actually, we became pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. I think if you had any kind of musical background at all, it makes it easier because you get the rhythm of it. Mm -hmm. Some people that are tone deaf, you know, would have a lot more <laughs> of a problem with it. But we we started becoming pretty good at it where we, you know, it didn't take a million takes unless somebody was, you know, drunk or something. And <laughs> <laughs> which could have happened because when we were doing Robotech, we were we were working at some really crazy hours, like, you know, really late at night sometimes. Like I would come and I would do a play and then I would come and do some voice acting or Wow. You could get really late at night sometimes. That's it. You could get really loopy by then. <laughs> like now I could never do I couldn't even do it, do that now. You know, like <laughs> I could do that when I was 30 years old, but not now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're in a in a voiceover booth. You're usually only getting your lines and a general outline of of maybe what the story is or or maybe just your lines. You're trying to match it to the to the lips of the characters that's already pre-drawn. How do you develop a character in that type of environment? 
Uh, you have to depend on the director. The directors usually read the whole script and they know what the, the arc is. And it was kind of funny because, especially when Carl Masick was there, he'd, he'd go into these really deep explanations of what was happening. And usually my eyes would glaze over and kind of go, okay, like, you know, just would kind of get the gist and do the take. So, <laughs> you know, it's like there's too much backstories doesn't really translate into what you're going to do with your voice sometimes. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes. I sense. mean, some people are really analytical. I'm, I'm just not. That's my, not my, uh, my personality style. So, I kind of, kind of a more of a intuitive, I guess. Do you remember uh, what your first impression was of the character Minmi? Well, at the time, I mean, I thought she was really cute, and and I had long hair and everything, long dark hair, and um, I was skinny. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, I just sort of related to it and she, she kind of had the, the personality that was close to me, you know, I'm just kind of a fun loving, um, not too serious type of person. So <laughs> enjoy it to the fullest, right? Yeah. That's what I like to do. I mean, not that I'm like totally not aware of, cause I am actually, but I'm just like some people like want to nitpick every little thing and I'm just don't work that way. Yeah, I, I would say from reading your blogs, uh, from watching your interviews, the, the main adjective I would use for you as a person is is positive. And I think that really comes through uh, with Min May. She is ultimately positive. Yeah, that's, that's what I like to be about, definitely. I mean, I do have some guest writers on my blog sometimes, but, <laughs> but I try to keep it pretty upbeat. Yeah, yeah, that you do. <laughs> You know, uh, in the past, uh, when you've attended conventions or when you've been a guest speaker, um, one of the first requests you always get is to sing. Um, and, and I'm not going to ask you to do that. <laughs> do you wish they had written more songs for you? <laughs> um, well, I was not like a professional singer. I was, I mean, I've been in some musicals and stuff, but not, you know, wouldn't I wouldn't say that I was, that was my forte so much. Mm -hmm. So. I took singing lessons and stuff during that time, but it, you know, I worked with LPO pretty, pretty closely, Yes. but I would, you know, it was, it wasn't the easiest, especially the, the types of songs that he wrote. They weren't, you know, they were kind of <laughs> like a Broadway type of song. They weren't, you know, like Annette Funicello or something where you could combine <laughs> the voices maybe three or four times and make it sound really good so you know it was it was it was challenging yeah it's, it's your voice just out there probably got the right amount of songs there for me <laughs> okay so you, you were happy with the number then yeah 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 i mean it, it was a lot of fun i loved working with him i just wished i'd been a little bit more um you know <laughs> skilled <laughs> certain things but <laughs> no uh, uh i did I did my best. We we are we are huge fans of the work of Opio Minucci. Yeah, he was a sweetheart. I loved hanging out with him. I'd go to his condo and you know he'd usually give me some wine or something like that, and he'd he'd take me into his room where he had his piano and he'd play me stuff and you know just really really nice guy. Unbelievable! Wow. <laughs> Rebecca, do you still keep in uh, regular contact with any of the other actors? Oh, yeah. Um, we have a, an Oscar party every year. So wow. a lot of the older actors 
end up showing up there at Steve Kramer's house. And um, wow. it's a lot of fun. So that's that's when we get to see each other all in one place. Other than like if you're at a convention, you run into people there. But usually when you work, you're working by yourself. So uh, and now you're working at home. <laughs> that's the other thing, too, is when we you know, when we started, we always had an engineer doing all that stuff. Right. If you want to be a voice actor, you have to not only be an actor, but you have to be a you know, like an engineer also. So that's. That's kind of like two sides of your brain working. Sure. Yeah, it's not easy for everybody. I had heard that you edited the podcast. I did. For my own pain and from Paul's own pain of editing this podcast, uh, what's that experience like for you? That was a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Well, you know, the thing is, some people do podcasts and they don't really do any that much editing other than adding the intro outro and all that. Sure. But I think because because I was a voice actor, I don't want to hear people smack their lips or uh, yes. sniff or you know do stuff like that so or you know just hesitate on what they're talking about because it's it gets boring and it's just uh it's it's like annoying to listen to. So it took me a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> I was just a little bit of a perfectionist nat. I mean not that I was, you know, great at like mixing stuff together, but I, I did the best <laughs> I could on that. Do you remember how you discovered that Robotech was a success? You know, we worked on it for a, a short amount of time and then it ended up on television. So that's, you know, then all of a sudden we started getting invitations to go to conventions. Like I went to the San Diego Comic-Con and they dressed me up in a, in a min-made dress. Oh, it was kind oh, of wow. funny because at that time... I was dressed up and, and not that many other people were dressed up at all, you know, when we first did it. And now it's the opposite where, you know, everybody else is dressed up and we're, we just come and we're just ourselves. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did that. And I did one in New York with, um, it's funny because Malcolm J Jamal Warner showed up mm -hmm. there. Sure. And, you know, I think I sat on his, or he sat in my lap. I'm not sure. Something <laughs> like that. He, was, he, was a lot, he wasn't um, fully grown at the time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and then then we started doing these creation conventions, and you know, so conventions now for voice actors have, has become a a really great source of income for a lot of voice actors. In fact, sometimes we make more. <laughs> on the conventions that we do actually doing the job, you know, it's kind of funny. Okay, Rebecca. So uh, Min Mei has an incredible arc in the show, inspiring Rick to join the defense force, winning the Miss Macross pageant and uh, starting a, an acting and singing career and becoming a symbol <laughs> of hope for the people of earth. What are your thoughts on Min Mei's impact on the series? I think she needs to come back because I think we need her right now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't get in really into detail about that, but like, uh, <laughs> the world needs some help right now. It does. It does. And and I will say in our podcast, and, and keep in mind, we're only on episode 12 at this. We, we do it once a week. But uh, up to this point, we have been uh, defenders of Min May. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I get you know, it's always been a love-hate relationship with her. <laughs> I, I happen to love her. Oh, and we, we do, uh, too. 
Oh, absolutely. So um, <laughs> I think we've taken up a lot of your time here. I know you said you had another engagement. So we'll we'll go ahead and wrap up our last question. Um, we okay. are currently celebrating Robotech's 35th year anniversary. Why do you think it's had such a, a lasting uh, impact? You know, that, that's been something that's just been so surprising that every year, you know, every decade that it that goes by, it's still really popular. And I think it, I think what, what the reason is, is because it was really the catalyst, I think, to bring a lot of anime into the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's changed a lot since then, whereas with Robotech, because we were putting it on television, we were kind of going more for the, the typical American audience where you have to build dialogue in all the, the quiet spots, which they don't do okay. anymore. They, they try to stay closer to the Japanese, and especially when you have stuff going on cable where you could have it be whatever it is. Um, that was the same thing that happened on Digimon too, because Digimon was, you know, a television show. Mm-hmm. So you had to go through the broadcast standards and practices. And, you know, they just kind of thought that American audiences didn't have much of an attention span. So they didn't want to have all these, these quiet moments, Sure. but you know, it's, it's really evolved. And, you know, some people will complain about that, but it's, you know, it's just something that, you know, took it a while to, to get to that point. You know, for a network to pick it up, it, it had to be in a, a certain type of format right. to do that. But at least it introduced people to it. Right. And Major and I have always agreed that it was what we liked about it the most is it was it was honest with you more than a lot of shows at that time were, you know, from a perspective of, of a young person. Mm-hmm. We would watch G.I. Joe and you would have missiles and bullets and bombs just all you know converging on one person. And then they always miraculously were okay. In yeah. Robotech, you weren't always okay, <laughs> and and we respected that. Yeah, that's. I think that's one thing that's just true in the Japanese anime in general too. It's just more, you know, they're not trying to gloss over things so much. Right, and it wasn't gore because we're not gore fest fans either, so yeah. it wasn't anything like that. Um, but it was an honest look at some emotional pain and stuff like that. And we were like, wow, this is this is better than we've ever thought before, you know, just kept kept watching it for more and more. It certainly introduced, uh, you know, that idea in a, in a cartoon, especially uh, of stakes and consequences. And it, it's the kind of show where you just you have to put in the next tape and you have to watch the next episode because they usually leave you on some kind of of, of cliffhanger. And you're like, no, 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 let's just it, forget all of our responsibilities nobody needs to clean their room or or mow the lawn we're gonna watch we're gonna sit here and we're gonna watch robotech for the rest of the day (laughs) that's cool i'm glad you like it (laughs) it was a lot of fun for sure i had listened to a prior uh, interview you had and it warmed my heart to hear that you had told that person that uh robotech was one of your favorite uh project projects that you had worked um, well, yeah, I mean, it had to be. I mean, it really, that was the one for me that gained the most notoriety. And it just was kind of fun characters, too. I mean, I like I like the characters and the people I worked with a lot. So some stuff, it's hard to work on, you know. <laughs> There's a couple of series I was like, why did I do this? You know, this is, this is like slasher movies, you know. <laughs> All right, Rebecca, well, Major and I want to thank you for taking the, the time to speak with us and for being sure. our very first guest. 
It's been a true pleasure. Uh, can you let your audience know what you're working on and how to find you? Well, right now, because of um, what's going on in the world, I haven't been doing anything so much with voiceovers, but, you know, I hope to pick it up again when things, if they ever get back to normal. But right now, I've been blogging since 2008, and this particular blog, babybloomster.com, I've had since late in 2011. Mm -hmm. So I've been working on it a long time. I actually learned how to set up websites all by myself. So I do everything myself on it. And it's just been a real passion project for me. It's just real interesting because I can go in a lot of different directions. Like for a while, I, you know, travel obviously was a big thing, which I can't do right at the moment, <laughs> but I'll, you know, I'm looking forward to doing it again soon. And, you know, it's, I'm mainly going for my, my demographic, which is women, active women over 50. Sure. It, it's, it's just a lot of fun. I, it's an, it's a creative outlet let for me also. Oh, that's wonderful. So babyboomster.com, but you can also go on my website for my voiceover career, which is rebeccaforstat.com. That's actually where I would rather interact with fans on either, either through my blog or through Twitter, which is at Rebecca Forstat. And not so much Facebook because it just got too many people going in and out of it and stuff. And they don't understand, like, what, what is she doing? You know? <laughs> just like all my blogging friends or, you know, my high school friends or something. It's like, what is that? <laughs> so Twitter is actually a good, a good um, way to communicate with me. Or you can email me at Rebecca at RebeccaForstat.com also. Oh, that's great. Again, thank you so much. Please know you're always, always welcome back. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, good luck with your podcast. Thank you so much. I already <laughs> consider myself lucky. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to once again thank Rebecca Forstaff for joining us and for agreeing to the interview. We had a blast. We hope you enjoyed it. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. We're talking episode 12, Big Escape. Big Escape first appeared on American televisions on March 19, 1985, and the synopsis reads, Having escaped capture, Max helps Rick, Lisa, and Ben escape from the Zentradi ship, leading Dolza to relieve Britai of command. Aliens Rico, Braun, and Conda shrink to human size in order to infiltrate the SDF-1 crew for a reconnaissance mission. That's a that's a pretty good explanation. That about explains the whole episode. That's a you really could have just read that, and that's mm -hmm. it, right? And so then the the narrator starts us off with: In the last episode of Robotech, Ritai had taken his Micronian prisoners to an audience with Dolza, the supreme leader of the Zentradi Armada. The jump through hyperspace and the disclosure of the ultimate Zentradi plan to destroy the Earth after it recovers the SDF-1 and the protoculture factory on board leaves Lisa, Rick, and Ben in a melancholy state of mind. Their only hope of escaping in time to warn Captain Global of this impending threat to Earth and its inhabitants lies in their ability to outmaneuver their giant captors. All right, let's break that down real quick. Do Lisa, Ben, and Rick know that the ultimate plan of the Zentradi is to destroy Earth after it recovers the SDF-1 because it has some hidden protoculture factory on board? I, I didn't capture that. Like I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't remember that part. 
Well, given the conversation that Lisa and Rick have later in this episode, they don't they do not know that because they're speculating wildly and and they get close to it. But I, I, I certainly wouldn't say that they that they know that. And by that purpose, they are feeling melancholy. Now, I would say that they know that the Zentradi can destroy Earth and I would imagine that they have that looming over their head. Right. Right, the, the 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 firepower that they they witnessed definitely would leave somebody melancholy. I don't know if I'd use that word, <laughs> but you're right. I I don't recall them ever hearing a direct threat to to Earth. Yeah, it's a weird weird script for the narrator. Then yeah, so I, I either he's either he's giving a synopsis about you know finding that out at some point, or or just he got that one wrong because again. From what we've seen up to this point, you're right. I do not believe they know. Well, maybe J.J. Smith is watching a different show. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut to inside what I'm calling the prison cell. Lieutenant Exposition Hunter recounts the Zentradi reaction to him and Lisa kissing. And Ben saying it was almost as if it scared them or something. So he, so he starts using that as a plan. Uh, or, or a basis for his plan to escape, um, saying that when the guards come back, they'll kiss. It'll give them enough time to make a break for it, which which is all good and well. They're going to get out of that prison cell. Yeah, but then what? Then Lisa kind of disagrees with that plan and even goes as far to accuse Rick of making up this plan so he can get so he can kiss her again. Right. Calling herself naive, but not stupid. This is the conclusion I've come to. She doesn't think it's a good plan. And and that's just it. So, you know, the the fact that she throws a little bit of like weird side argument that Rick is just trying to kiss her again is just really her way of saying like, yeah, what a terrible plan. That's never going to work. It, yeah, you and it's that I I I can agree with that. I I didn't know exactly why she would say that. Like why would Rick want to kiss her again? Maybe too. It's got you know the kiss has her all you know confused at this point too. So on top of the fear, on top of her insecurities, on top of everything that she's dealing with at this point, mm-hmm. now you know she may be remembering this kiss and it's confusing her, and so she lashes out like that because it's what's on her mind, you know. Yeah, yeah. It seemed out of place for her, but I thought maybe it was just this is the way she's expressing her thought that it's a terrible plan. Now, in the original Japanese version, she doesn't make the argument that she, uh, that he just wants to kiss her. She just makes the argument, what a stupid plan. And then Rick comes back with uh, that he would not kiss her unless it were a life, and de- or life or death situation. And then she gets kind of upset about that. Like, she's <laughs> like, huh, you know, like. <laughs> so do you think uh, at this point, Ben is, is playing a middle child? Where, he, where he's like, hey, 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 don't fight. I'll I'll gladly offer up my lips. Definitely. So he goes he gets to that point, but then cuz you're right like like I think if Max were in the middle of this, like you're already used to the, to Lieutenant Hunter and 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 it's Lieutenant Hayes, right? Yes. Um are they they're always fighting and it's probably like a known thing that they just don't get along with each other, you know? Right. And so they start they start going at it and it's one of those things where you roll your eyes. You know how like you have that that couple you know friend friend couple (laughs) but you know that at some point they're gonna start fighting like they always do yeah and everybody just kind of rolls their eyes and goes here they go again you know yeah 
terrible when it's at their house when they're hosting it's like yes. a, the dinner party from the office yes <laughs> so it's like that i think max would have been more uncomfortable and been like guys come on let's let's get let's get out of this you know where yeah. ben he, he doesn't he doesn't He's just not bright enough to catch that he's that uncomfortable, you know? That's why he's not really saying anything, not trying to make the peace or anything else. And then when it comes to, well, if she doesn't want to do it, I'll, you know, offer up my lips and then starts <laughs> blowing kisses. Like, that's totally him, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I like that that him doing that, well, it just it, it frustrates both Rick and Lisa at that point. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, quit, quit being an idiot, Ben. <laughs> So then uh, back to the interrogation debrief um, with Brita, Exidor, Dolza, Braun, Rico, and Conda. The fact that they're still at the table uh, debriefing means it was probably just a couple of minutes after the last episode, right? Right. Yes, yes. And uh, Brita mentions that they've learned nothing about what the Micronians know. Did, did you catch that Exidor actually has a chair? <laughs> I didn't. He does have a chair, doesn't he? Yes, and I think I figured out why he doesn't sit in one normally. Uh, it looks like a high chair. The table <laughs> is to his chin. <laughs> so I I don't think now it's a, a thing where Britai is like, you can't sit, Exodor. Now it's like, Exodor's like, oh, it's okay. I don't, you know, my neck hurts. I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> I'll stand. <laughs> oh, man. Good catch. <laughs> so, uh, Dolza announces that they must send spies to the SDF-1. Uh, Exodor agrees. Um, it, it, mainly just to find out what the humans know about protoculture. Right, about Robotech protoculture. Yeah, which I, I like. I mean, it, it increases the mystery around the SDF-1 and around protoculture itself. Um, I'm wondering if sending spies is a common plan for the Zentradi. Like, is that a common tactic? I don't think it is. I don't think it is because I, uh, from my understanding, is that these Entrati, you know, are fight first kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like like face to face more than uh, subterfuge. So, but this is Dolza, you know, and Dolza, I think, frustrated at the failure for them to cap recapture the SDF-1 and um, also... Uh, leading to show how important whatever it is they're looking for on the SDF-1 is. Mm -hmm. He's thinking outside the box now, you know? Yeah, yeah. And good of Exodor to, to recommend that they go to Dolza for this. Right, right. Yeah, so then uh, Conda, Rico, and Braun start talking with one another, saying things like, I'd like to see the Micronians in their natural surroundings. And, and Braun's, Braun's agreeing. I, th I think it's Conda saying, you know, I want to see them again. Did you notice their voices sounded a little different at that little point? It, it, it kind of merges back to normal voices. But when when I think you're right, when it's Conda saying that he wants to uh, see them in their natural surroundings, um, he sounded different to me. It didn't sound like his normal voice. I, I agree 100% because I had to watch it like three or four times to see who's saying it because uh, they, they don't show they, who's saying, you know, I want to go back and see them in their natural surroundings. And and I make the assumption that it's Conda and then that it's Braun that's agreeing because I think, yeah, because it is Braun that's agreeing and Rico does have a very distinct voice and I know it wasn't him talking. And Rico's voice is, sounds the same to me. Rico's the middle guy at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah, and because and remember, he kind of, 
under his breath, he mutters, now what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I was, that leads me to my next question. Like, how on board is Rico with this plan? He he may agree at this point that, that they've developed some weapon through protoculture uh, as he understands it right now. And that's why they have that strange feeling whenever they see a scantily clad uh, Micronian or saw them kiss. Uh, but I still don't think he's he's on board with this plan. He's just kind of going along with Braun and Conda. No, I, I disagree. I, to me, he seems the most enthused to to go to go along with it. Um, I think that he's just like you know he. They've been in this briefing room, you know, who knows how long. They've experienced some weirdness as it was already, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, then the the three of them are are the three leaders are discussing their stuff. And Rico's just like, now what? Not so much to the plan, just that they're still sitting there. And, you know, they're kind of minor to the the three leaders. So I bet you they were ignored for a while while the three are discussing their plan. And Rico's like, dude, can we go? Or what are we doing here? I'll tell you what, I I relate with these guys. I I am so often in meetings with with, uh, people two to three to four times my pay grade. Uh, as they discuss, you know, the the intricacies of the, the business that I work at. And meanwhile, I'm just sitting there twiddling my thumbs and toes going like, cool, cool. I learned that. Can't tell anybody. I'm sure you've <laughs> muttered, now what? A couple of times. <laughs> Only when somebody says, okay, well, um, if there's nothing else, then uh, thank you guys for coming. And then somebody's hand shoots up. Well, well, hold on. I have a question. Hey. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, the McKinney novel gives us a little bit more insight into this. During their discussion, it, it, actually not the discussion, it's it's uh, kind of the narration is telling us that they want to do it less for uh, the purpose of, of their mission and more to be able to see half-naked Micronians again. Can't argue with that. That's why. <laughs> I had some feelings. I liked it. Let's go back. So then Exodor wonders, well, they'll find volunteers to reduce to human size and infiltrate their bizarre culture. And uh, I can't tell which one, if it was Bron or Conda. They volunteer immediately. Because Dolza reflects that, it, that he's right. It will be hard, you know? And then they're like, nope, I will do it. This, like, setup for it, it also makes me think of... How exciting it must have been to have been watching this, you know, five days a week. Because you get this setup that, oh, these guys are going to go and infiltrate the SDF-1 and become spies and all that. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen this episode, but that'll happen on Thursday, you know? Right, yeah. All right, so we switch over to the prison, or outside the prison cell, um, where we have a lone guard yawning, although it looked more like he was about to sneeze. And uh, we see that a that the disguised Max is watching him from around the corner. And he expresses how lucky the situation is, um, that there's only one guard and he's half asleep. Yeah. So cut to the inside of the cell. Uh, Lisa's holding the recordings of the interrogation in her hand, and she says they should try Rick's plan, given that the information is is so important. You know, she looks like um, hurt or something. You know, with the, with the agreement to kissing Rick, and and I was just wondering, is she thinking about Carl Reber? 
I, you know what? I, that's a great point. I, I, I don't know, but I, I know her character seems to be dealing with some kind of inner depression. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, it, it, it's, it, it'd be there, there's a, there's all kinds of reasons that it could be, or, or yes, Reber would be a perfect reason would be perfectly reasonable to be as depressed as she's showing you know yeah i was just wondering if if she felt like she was cheating on him or or cheating on his memory or something like that uh with what's already taken place and then the fact that she's gonna have to do it again this time premeditated you know the the first time she kisses rick it's because they were all gonna get they were gonna get squashed if not right right that asshole carl reber right right <laughs> and uh so then rick tells her not to do him any favors um lisa states that it's her mission to or it's her mission to bring back the info on her camera uh, and uh she reminds rick that it's his mission too right yeah and and then ben's saying now you're beginning to sound like an officer because she's agreeing with rick's plan right yeah but come on she's been leading since they got there her thinking Rick's plan wasn't going to work or that it was a bad plan, it, it it doesn't knock the fact that she's still leading. She's been she's been running the show. Yeah, dude, that's just Ben, you know? I mean, what is, what is that? Who know? I, I think that was his way of trying to <laughs> show a little bit of encouragement, you know? Like, like see, you're coming around. Like, now, now you're sounding like an officer. But, you know, when someone gives yeah. you some kind of effort or, you know, tries to, tries to compliment your effort and... It comes out odd, and you're just like, dude, I, I don't need your compliment. I know, I know. <laughs> Especially a backhanded guy. Right. Um, so, yeah, so then they prepare to kiss. Uh, ben standing guard at the door. Uh, Lisa saying, I'm ready. It's your move. Well, yeah, so at first she starts saying, okay, well, let's go. And Rick is like, well, let's wait for the enemy to show up first. How's, how's that one, you know? And I think he just had to throw that one in there to be like a smartass about it, you know? Right, right. And that's when they hear a noise outside and get into position. As they set the kiss, uh, Lisa closes her eyes. Is she trying to close out the world so she doesn't have to think about it? Or is she like, <laughs> I may as well get something out of this? Yeah, you know, or just just a natural reaction when you... And it's kind of funny how we close our eyes to kiss, you know? I never really thought of the mechanics of a kiss, but... It would be weird to keep your eyes open. You know? Well, yeah, you're going to be so close to somebody else's face. It goes out of focus. Yeah, yeah. Or you're just staring down like the bridge of a nose. Kissing's weird, man. It is. It is when you think about it. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the doors open to reveal who we know is Max. Ben says it works, and they all run for the door. And they make a break for it. Uh, then we hear Max say, wait, guys, it's me, Max, look. And he tips his head back to show the face <laughs> of the Veritech, which, you know, didn't show a whole lot. But they're hearing Max's voice, which surprises them. But uh, yeah, Rick is super relieved. Uh, Lisa admits that, that they thought he was dead. Right, right. Can you imagine like, oh, oh, thank God. Not only are you alive, which is good enough in and of itself, but now you're here to rescue us. And Ben is like, how would you get that uniform? <laughs> that's a story for another time then max uh throws the uh, i don't know unconscious or dead zentradi guard in 
Yes, and I have it just like that too. Is he dead or unconscious? Now, <laughs> this is Max we're talking about, right? Yeah. And underneath that layer of smile and <laughs> and happiness, you know, there's a psychopath in there. Okay? Behind every smirk is a straight up killer. Yes, I think that Zentradi is dead. Um, but I called it a prison cell. Can we assume there's a place on the on Britai's flagship where they hold prisoners? Yeah. And right. can we assume that that's what this is? Yes. So why the hell does Max close a door behind him? What prison cell opens from the inside? That's a great question. <laughs> like, I get. I get that he closes the door to obscure the view, but it just seems like a like a bad move there. Right. If you can't open that again, you're in some trouble. <laughs> Veritech or not. Uh, so he picks up Rick, uh, Rick and Lisa, putting them into his left breast. He puts Ben into his right breast pocket, saying he doesn't want to interrupt the lovebirds. And then we switch over to Britai. Well, so he's he's busting Rick's balls again. And then, what do you think he thought? Like, he opens the door and, and he sees the lieutenants kissing? Like, don't, he would, don't you think that would have been like, hmm, wow, like, what, what, what's going on here? <laughs> I, you know what? I I think he would have been like, I knew it. So anyway, let's get out of here. <laughs> it's like when those in those shows, right, where people where you have the, the two people fighting, there's that angst going on, and someone else tells him, "Would you guys just do it already?" <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. You think he felt something like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just it would have seemed funny, like, like if I was rescuing everybody, I open the door and the two people are kissing. I'd be like, "Whoa, <laughs> what's going on here?" You know, there's a little bit of, of well. We're gonna die. Let's uh, let's get our kicks while there's while we're still able to. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, what was that movie with Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd? Um, Spies like us. Yeah. Remember when they thought the nuclear bomb was gonna explode? <laughs> yeah. And so he was like, "Want to go out with a bang?" <laughs> and she was like, "If if we were in a bar, I'd throw a drink in your face. But under the circumstances, doesn't seem like a bad idea." <laughs> Um, all right, so we switch over to uh, Britai expressing concern that Rico and his team aren't right for the spy mission, but uh, Dolza believes they'll be just fine. Once they um, are inside the SDF-1. And Exodor is not sure. Yeah. He's concerned. Um, he, he probably has the most data on them, right? Right. So, And, and why wouldn't Dolza listen? You know, because he's like, yeah, I know they're good. And why, like... Britai and, and Exodor are telling you, like, hey, we're the ones that have been on the front lines, and I don't know about these guys, you know? Yeah, yeah. They they certainly throw a lot of uh, curveballs at you. So th I think this is one of the points that shows that Dolza is not, uh, you know, so far he's exhibited, in, in my opinion, great leadership qualities, you know? Mm -hmm. but, it, but it shows, you know, this goes to show that he can still make a mistake. Yes. Um, do you think that's uh, hubris or just uh, narrow-sightedness? Well, I think it's intentional. Really? Yeah. Tell me about that. This episode gives us a glance, because up, up until this point, the Zentradi have been spying on humans, you know, and Micronians, and learning all about them and mm -hmm. their culture. This is giving us insight now into Zentradi culture. You know, we, we learn a lot about them on this one. Yeah. And so... 
Dolza has seemed to be like this super scary creature or, or, or leader, you know, ruthless, fearless, just how could we ever defeat him? And he makes his first mistake. They're not, what's the word, like infallible? Is that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, I like that. Which is, you know, in terms of depth of character or depth of culture, it's exactly what you want to see. It, it, it makes a great story. Yeah, it really does. So then we uh, we come back over to Max and group, uh, peering out the doors of the prison cell, looking for anyone. Uh, Max has his signature smirk, and that's where he's needling Rick, <laughs> saying that he thought he prefers younger women. <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that I could see that that would be, you know, where, where some guy is with that younger girl, you know, like Min Mei, mm-hmm. and you and you and you tease him about that. Yeah. And now you're yeah. like, whoa, you know, it's just one it's one more thing to tease somebody about, you know? Yeah, uh, especially your boss, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> promising not to tell anybody once they get back to base with little right. wink. Mum's the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mum's the word. Because they try to protest it, you know, they're trying to explain why they were doing that. And he's like, Yeah, no, no, like I got it. <laughs> mission, mission, yeah, mission. So a great shot of uh Max opening the prison doors from the inside again and uh you know it's a blinding light that comes in through there uh, and he walks through it man i don't know how they do that in in animation but beautifully animated and the window it has like that that intricate what, what do they call it in in jewelry it's a, a fillery I, I think you know with the the lines inside of it oh sure yeah you know what i mean and, and it's no big deal, but to me, it helped it make it look alien, you, you know? Oh, absolutely. Again, like kind of grown more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. I do love that. So, Max and group are going out into the, the hallway. So, uh, buckle up, everybody, because it's it's time to suspend your disbelief for pretty much the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so they walk past his Entrati soldier, seemingly unnoticed, right? Seems like he doesn't notice at first. Yeah, it doesn't work this time. The Zentradi they pass starts calling out towards him, and uh, Max just starts booking it into two Zentradi at the end of the hall. So he grabs one of them, swings him around like a rag doll, and hits the other Zentradi, and, and then just continues to run. Um, all three of them start chasing after and begin shooting at them. It's a real fast action sequence here, and Rick tells Max to switch into uh, guardian mode. Right. So it makes you aware that Max has actually attended the Gracie School of Jiu-Jitsu as he <laughs> flings that one Zentradi right into the other. And, and you know, it's it's highly improbable, but can you imagine like like being able to, to use somebody's weight and and just slam someone else. Uh, I think about it all the time. That'd be pretty. <laughs> that'd be pretty cool. And uh, it reminds me of that scene in in Demolition Man where Wesley Snipes is in that in the museum trying to get a gun, right? And he's kicking mm-hmm. away at that window, and the one guy comes up and says, "Excuse me, sir, what seems to be your boggle?" <laughs> he's like, "My boggle." <laughs> and then he goes, "Wait a minute, how much do you weigh?" And the next scene, he flings him just like that guy, just like Max did, right into the window. <laughs> Great analogy. <laughs> Good movie, by the way. Yeah. Yes, it was. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, saw that in the theater. 
Yeah, wow, me too. It took my my sisters. You know, when one day her and her friends wanted to go see a movie, and I'm like, I'll take you guys. There's this one demolition man. Well, I'll go with me because nobody else would. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a quick cut to a vid screen coming to life, and a soldier is informing General Britai that the prisoners have escaped. I missed that one. Yeah, he said, General Britai, what is it? The prisoners have escaped. Just a just a weird little uh, mix up there. I meant commander. Wow. Yeah, wow. Okay, man, I missed that one. Good yeah, stuff. yeah. Hits hits the hits the ear weird. So those Exodor and Britai say, What? Uh just as Max crashes through the vid screen glass and out the window of the other side of the room, um, instantly killing Ben, Lisa, and Rick, who have sustained uh, multiple <laughs> lacerations from the no, shards of glass. No, no, and Several no. instances of blunt force like trauma. <laughs> nope, they're still alive and well inside the coat pocket. Because <laughs> it was that breakaway movie glass, so, you know, there was no way that it was going to cut anybody. <laughs> and, and the Zentradi coat is made of Kevlar. Yes, and, you know, and Max had his arms up to where he was completely blocking them, so... They were shielded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm convinced they could have survived the vacuum of space at this point. <laughs> so the, Max continues to fly through the ship and through what appears to be like hologram projection screens. Right, yeah, right, like hollow screens. Yeah, because yeah, they're not more glass to break, but no. They're not shattering. No, no, just, just going through holograms. Yeah, why, what are they? Because the it appears they're the same exact screen multiple times. I can't figure out what their operational value is, but... Maybe it's just a computer running calculations. Possibly. I mean, for that huge of a ship, there's probably all kinds of calculations going on. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. But anyways, there there's vid screens, and or I'm sorry, hollow screens, and he's going right through them. And we forgot to mention, he's in uh, Guardian mode at this point. Yes. Yeah. So that he's the jacket has fit over his plane, and I don't know why, but that's always burned, you know, etched a, a little place in my mind because that, like there was something cool about that, you know, that he went into that guardian mode. He still got that jacket on just because I mean you can't take it off, and it's what's carrying everybody else. Oh, it's super um, cool. But you're in guardian mode, you know. Yeah, he's, he's got, got a cape now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he is Max, the superhero. And then Dolza, Dolza admits that the Micronians are quite amazing. Like, can you imagine? He's like, they escaped. Like, it blows them away, you know, on top of everything else. Right. They may have, they may have uncovered protoculture. They have this crazy society that they can't determine right at this point whether it's a good thing or a bad thing because they don't, they don't know, but it's managed to fend off Britai and his whole thing, mm -hmm. and now they've escaped. Like, yeah. wow. Here's, here's a point back to Dolza. He keeps his cool during this, you know? An escaped Veritech came crashing through a vid screen into the room he was in. And he had to duck. Yeah, and he's like, hmm, they're quite amazing, aren't they? And Brita's like, oh, we're going to recapture them. And he's like, yeah, see that you do. Yeah, you're right. I just like uh, either, you know, because it's it's not that they don't show emotion. We've seen all of them show emotion, uh, the Zentradi at this point. You know, they're not purely logic-based. They, ha they have some emotion. It's mostly anger. So the fact that he's able to just push all that down and then... Keep his poise. Right, right. I think it's great. That's why he's the supreme leader. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so Max says they can uh, lose the enemy, right, by using the elevator to another level. Yeah. 
Um, so he flies in, and there's a lot of shots coming in around Max. Um, I don't know exactly when when the Zentradi found them or were able to catch up to him and, and start shooting. I, I do have to imagine a lot of shots are hitting his back. And and that as an explanation to why when they get into the elevator, the, the Veritech starting to shut down. So, yeah. So, and, and hear me on this one, okay? So, um, he, he, you're right. Because it, it appears that there's smoking little areas, you know, like coming off of him as, as of the, he goes. Of the jacket. And, yeah. Yeah. So, you're right. He's being peppered. And so, he's probably being hit. And... What if that jacket is blocking out air intakes to cool the engines, you know? And so that's he put, why he says he's overheating? Yes. That's brilliant. So he's pushed he's pushed the, the Veritech as far as, you know, already because he had to fly through that under all that fire. That jacket is, is now being sucked up into the intakes, you know, causing it not to be able to cool down mm-hmm. while being pushed and he overheats. I like it. Good job. Yeah, one time uh, when my brother and I went to Long Beach, right, we were driving his truck to put to tow the boat, and this goddamn piece of plastic fell off of another car and hit right over the hood, right over the hood of my brother's truck. Oh wow! What kind of what kind of piece of plastic? Like, like a tarp, the... like a tarp kind of oh, thing. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, with with our luck, you know. We it his it perfectly wrapped around the hood of his of his truck didn't hit the windshield or anything but wrapped around and within several minutes it started to overheat because no air was getting to the the truck engine. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then what's hilarious about it? So we pull off the freeway, uh-huh. and as we finally stop, the 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 plastic falls off on its own. Okay. Naturally. So yeah, right. So it falls off on its own. We bust a okay. We bust a U, which was hard enough towing a boat, you know. Uh, and we're in the middle of L.A., so it, it's not like you, it's the easiest thing to bust a U-turn. As we come back to the on-ramp, which is right next to the off-ramp that we um, exited, that the wind catches that same piece of plastic and almost blew it back on. <laughs> And it just, I mean, we hit it. We hit because I was like, oh, dude, here it comes again. And he had to kind of like, he didn't swerve, but he, he tried to move out of the way. And he ended up running it over and it kind of whipped up and we thought it was going to catch. But then I guess like the wheel caught it and dragged it back down. Oh, that's unbelievable. Pushed it behind us. And I was like, that is ridiculous. <laughs> so they, they fly into the elevator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Max says it overheats um, and he says... It appears that he's it's shutting down because he reaches for the, the, the control lever, but that's it. The Veritech can't even touch the lever anymore. Right. He must have seized up, you know? So uh, Rick has to climb out onto the hands of the mecha and pull the elevator switch. And so he manages to hit it, and they, it appears they're heading down, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the elevator starts heading down. Max opens his uh, cockpit saying the plane's going to blow in a couple of minutes. Fantastic. <laughs> and Rick looks to Lisa for instruction, who uh, who says we're just going to have to blast our way out. Uh, Max has a laser rifle, and he makes sure to tell everybody that. And then you, yep, and he's got it in his hands. But what he grabs looks like an RL-1, which is a rocket launcher, a little miniature rocket launcher that, they, that, that pilots were actually issued. Oh, man. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another strongly worded letter to Harmony Gold. 
right? <laughs> <laughs> and then we see the elevator floor indicator um, arrive at a, I don't know, a, a lower level floor. I don't know how many floors they've gone down. So the doors open up and they run out. And uh, as Zentrani makes a dive for them, uh, they must seem like mice to Zentrani, right? That's exactly what I was. That's man. You're, are you reading my notes? Is my camera on, or what, what, how, how are we doing this? Because that's exactly what I thought. Imagine trying to catch a mouse. You know. Yeah, yeah, a, a, a witty mouse. In a whole situation, you're not even used to anyway. You know, like you're you don't have prisoners escaped on your ship ever. Yeah, well, I imagine that's why he took a dive. Yeah, like it, it doesn't seem tactically like the best plan to just dive at at these guys. Um, and I also don't know, do you think the instructions are, you know, capture them or kill them? I think it's you capture know? them. It's got to be capture them. Okay. All right. Well, it seems like a bad plan to just dive down. Um, but they're able to escape. Uh, Max and Ben run off to the left down a hallway. Lisa and Rick run right down another hallway that's adjacent to it. Uh, and then the Zentradi, <laughs> the Zentradi hesitates for a second. Uh, sees the smoking Veritech that's still in the elevator moments before it explodes. And, okay, so we already seen the self-destruct sequence go off um, with Britai, right? Yes. That explosion didn't look quite as big as the elevator one. Well, okay. <laughs> it's in an enclosed area, right? So we're in the elevator and then a corridor. So I, I think the blast was was concentrated where when Rick's uh, Veritech exploded, you know, it was in an open area and still got still got retied pretty good. And do you think that it may have also been that Rick's was a self-destruct sequence that he intentionally set off where those charges are probably not exactly to make that type of explosion, you know, because what, oh, you know, right. you don't want your pilot caught up in that explosion as he's trying to eject out. Yeah, it's just meant to disable the, the vehicle and make it, you know, scrap heat. Whereas Max, I don't think he ever set off the self-destruct sequence. I think it blew up. Oh, it, yeah, absolutely it did. So whatever nuclear, you know, I, I bet you the nuclear reactor, whatever it is that the Veritex have on a self-destruct sequence is is not blown up. Otherwise, it might wow. catch the pilot. Whereas when you just explode, there goes your reactor too, and it's going to make quite a few fireworks, you know? And and that it did. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Entrati turned into squiggly lines. Yeah, really quick, right? But quick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're following Rick and Lisa at this point as they're running to safety. Um, they round a corner and see three Zentradi-sized uh, pods filled with a purple liquid. Um, I'm, I'm guessing uh, Grapasaurus Rex. <laughs> right. It is the drink of life. And so there's uh, chambers, right? Uh, Lisa, she takes a picture, but she identifies them as a, like a cloning chamber, right? All of a sudden she can tell that the Zentradi are clones, yeah, and, and she's saying that's why they all look the same, because they're clones. And I'm, I'm like, you know, except for the guards, which which do look the same. The only Zentrati they've met is Rico, Conda, Exidor, Britai, and Dolza. None of which look the same. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't see where she draws that conclusion from. Yeah, it's a pretty big jump right there. <laughs> but they do notice uh, smaller human-sized pods in front of those larger ones. And uh, I can't really tell what's happening here. Is it is it that Rico, Conda, and Braun are... Because y- you see their outline, so they're in the larger one, and then but we also see human-sized figures of Rico, Conda, and Braun in the smaller pods. How does this work? Are they shrunk or is an entirely new clone made up and then their consciousness is inserted into the smaller ones and then the the larger ones are destroyed? What 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 happens here? Talk to me. You got me, homie. I I Paul, I've been waiting all week to talk to you about this because you were supposed to have all the answers. I, I and I wish I could tell you on this one. My understanding is that no the 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 consciousness is not transferred from one body to the other okay I, they're supposed to be back and forth kind of like lisa's saying it's like a submolecular transformation you know from from large to to small right but you don't see a stage like like you would think that you would see stages of you know shrinking or whatever and right. you don't you, like you said and one of those outlines looks like uh Rico, you know, to me, I saw that the, his hair. Absolutely, it does. And yeah. so, so, so you're right. Why is I mean, I, yeah, I don't get it. I, the only conclusion I drew is that the one, the big ones, are just other soldiers being created, you know. And then these guys have already been shrunk, and they're and they're fit, you know, in the finishing stages in that little one. Okay. Okay, but I don't. Right. But but that's just me trying to make sense of it. I. I, I was thoroughly confused when I saw that too. You know what? I, as long as we're both confused, I feel okay with it. Okay, well, well, color me confused, right? Because, <laughs> because <laughs> we understand the intention of what they're trying to do. Uh, we may not understand the mechanics, and that's fine. Was there any other thing on the on the um, Japanese version that gave any kind of better hint as to what was going on not here? Not a single thing. No, not a single thing. Uh, that was a scene I watched very closely just for that. So then we're cutting back over to, to Max and Ben being chased by guards. They shoot through a doorway and Max turns around and shoots the closing mechanism, which, you know, we all know will instantly always close a door and... And seal it, yes. <laughs> when in doubt, just crush the control panel. I have I have no problems with that. <laughs> My uh, belief has been suspended, and let's move on. <laughs> so let's cut back over to Britai and Dolza. Funny little scene here. Glass shards are being swept. Yep, with a dustpan. With a dustpan and a rigid-looking broom. You know, but their their dustpan technology is light years ahead of ours, so <laughs> right. I, I'm not one to question them. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Britai reports that the Micronians have not been recaptured because their size makes them difficult to find, which would make sense. Mm, yeah. uh, and Dolza tells Britai that it's his responsibility and uh, that failure will be recorded. Additionally, he's going to be relieved of active duty for the time being. You know, I said this about Dolza, but Britai, he accepts this pretty gracefully. Like, yeah, no, I, I saw that coming. Yeah, yeah, he kind of raises an eyebrow, uh-huh. and I think it's just the sting of it, you know. Yeah, but uh, but he's like, 
And then and then Exidor, you know, kind of is the mouthpiece of of Brita at this point and says who's gonna who's gonna be responsible for the spies? Because I'm sure it would have been Britai speaking out of turn if he had said that immediately following that. And Dolza says that Azonia will now be in charge of that operation, and she is a loyal subject who has never failed him. Which, you know, is a little bit of a, a little bit of salt on the wound there. Yeah. Again, I think another point that that you know, leading to the the faults of of Dolza that he is he can be too harsh, you know? He, did, he didn't take everything into consideration at this point. Right, right. But also, too, a, a hint into Zantrati culture that failure is not tolerated, even if you're Britai. Yeah, would, would you have considered um, Britai saying that the, uh, you know, that they're small and hard to find, would you have considered that a, an excuse? Yeah, from Dolza's point of view, yes, I think I would have. I would have been yeah. like, well, yeah, I know they're small. I saw them, too. Get them. So we're going to see her a little later in the episode, but I wanted to I wanted to bring up Azonia because it's the first time we've heard it and uh, just give a little bit of uh, information on there. She is voiced by Alexandra Kenworthy, who is the mother of Gregory Snegoff. Hmm. So, hey, and I, I, I dig me some Azonia. She, she's, she's a good character. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but we'll meet her a little later. Because we're now back to Rick and Lisa discussing what they saw. Right, so they seem to be in a weapons depot, right? Yes. And they talk about what they saw. Uh, Lisa wonders if the aliens and, and humans could be genetically related. Yeah, which is a pretty interesting thing to say. And something I would... You know, it would probably taken me months or years to to have come around to that. But I would have thought the same thing. Like, well, you know what? Maybe Maybe in some way... They came to Earth. Um, it, the thing that's a little confusing is her uh, her postulation that they started off our size. Uh, that's not something I probably would have made an assumption on. Uh, but, you know, us being genetically related in some way or another, it, it, it would seem probably, you know, using Occam's razor, it would probably be the simplest explanation. Right, right. I mean, just, just based off of it, look, look alike so much, you know? Right, right. So, and Rick is skeptical. Rick, you know, at, at first he's kind of like, eh, but Lisa explains her point more and Rick starts to come around. You know? Well, it's big brain stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because she's coming up with it so quick, like, I, I would definitely, if I were Rick, I'd be like, wait, what? That's ridiculous. Why are you even thinking about that? Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, Rick asks how they can shrink and grow, you know, how, and, and, and that's, that's one of the, the, the clues, the context clues we get that, lets us, that allows us to understand what was going on in that other scene, you know? Yes. Yeah, Ugh, that, that's true. You know what? I carry so many assumptions with me because, it, you know, obviously we've seen this a thousand times, but um, yeah, that's true. That's the... But it's out of order. That's why it was so confusing, you know? Yeah. And uh, Lisa says she thinks it's from protoculture. Like she's starting to to put that together. You know, this protoculture seems to be the technology that allows this. So as they're discussing this, you know, Lisa's up against the wall and they don't notice this big hand coming through the door, right? Or through a... <laughs> and so it, it this reaches over, grabs Lisa. It, it, let me just say, an armored 
An armored guard has snuck up on them. <laughs> a 50-foot armored guard. <laughs> so he reaches through, grabs a hold of Lisa. Uh, Rick, I don't know what he thinks he's going to do, but he starts running toward the enemy. Uh, and the enemy punts his ass right into the rifle rack. Yeah, described in the McKinney novel as, as less than a kick, but more as carrying him. Like like a push with your foot, right? Right, right. Uh, but... Here's the, here's the one thing I want to talk about is that Frankenstein as grunt that this guy is giving the entire time. It is really just <laughs> like, what's that about? These guys can talk. We may not understand them, but they, oh, maybe that's what it is to them, to, to Rick and Lisa, right? Yeah. That's what their language sounds A like. A loud, booming, guttural cry, right? Just put that together. <laughs> yeah, so Rick goes into a row of guns or uh, assault rifles uh, that crash down around him. And then Lisa, seeing Rick getting hurt, drops her camera. And we see it fall down and crash and break into a thousand pieces. Yes, that, that camera apparently was made of glass. So that was pretty... <laughs> I thought that was pretty crazy myself. Well, it's falling from, uh, what, we'll say 45 feet? Right, but, okay, but even then, I can, I can see a few pieces falling apart. You know, the... the, the it's it can't be that heavy so it's not i don't know i don't know the way it shattered was a well think about it it's only 2009 i don't think they had gorilla glass yet <laughs> maybe not but apparently they had a whole glass camera <laughs> and uh the zentradi lets out another uh frankenstein grunt and is about to walk off with lisa uh before he looks back quizzically to a raising rifle barrel and old Rick Hunter is somehow summoned the power to raise up a <laughs> Zentradi uh, assault rifle. Scores a headshot. Well, first off, let's talk about the shot. Um, you know, back back from our original episode, man, we talked about seeing people die, and while seeing somebody explode in a nuclear reaction from a Veritech and and them turn into squiggly lines. This is a headshot right between the eyes. <laughs> yes. Now they have the mask on them, and I imagine that they had the mask on them to kind of keep it, you know, a, a little less uh, gory. But this is brutal, yeah, right? I mean, that's a that's a shot to the head, you know. That is not something you expect to see on uh, on network television. No, 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 uh, no. Fear in his eyes. But but let's get into it. <laughs> Let's get into the at at the least because the the Zentradi assault rifle is is described as as comparable to the GU11, and we know the GU11 is somewhere around six to seven hundred pounds. So let's talk about old Mouse Hunter <laughs> being, lifting up, being able to lift up that gun, huh? Lift it up because we saw them all fall down. It's not like one was propped up on on top of the other, so he was somehow able to to navigate it in some way. Um, I don't know how how much of a hair trigger this thing has, but it does look like he's using all his force to to do it. Uh, it, it we've already suspended our disbelief. We we're we're accepting this as gospel. I have no problems with that. But but how say you to this scene? When you watched it originally. When I watched it originally as a kid, I thought it was amazing. Okay. First off, yep. the fact that a headshot, 
appears on the, you know this anime was I was nuts okay and and it, it invoked like you said you know um, luckily the glass of the helmet is protecting you from watching his brain spilling out of his head right and and that kind of thing but or that, or that like single drop of blood right right um so i was like wow that was crazy you know mm-hmm. um now you know watching it i'm like wow that was pretty amazing <laughs> <laughs> Oh, how we've evolved over these 30 years. <laughs> right, right. So, um, okay, so Rick, first of all, first of all, I'm still amazed Rick is alive at this point, okay? Because I didn't see him get pushed. I saw him get field gold kicked right into those guns. Yeah, yeah. In the McKinney novels, he says that he attributes it to, he will later tr- attribute it to uh, adrenaline. No, and, and okay, I mean, could you survive? Yes, especially if he did try to push you. Because, like, I'm trying to think of, I, you know, one time I was, okay, these cats got in my backyard and my dog was about to eat them, okay? Where and, the hell is this going? Well, okay. okay, so I had to catch these little baby cats before they died. Because my oh, okay. dogs were about to eat them. And they were little and they were agile, but they were all over the place. And I remember it. I couldn't, like, like again, like a big Zentradi, I had tried to dive on a few. I caught that, some of them. <laughs> but that last little one, I couldn't. And I had to, like, kick at him. And I did just that. I ended up pushing him with my foot. And it sure. r- rolled him over. And then I was able to grab him and get him out to safety, you know? Okay. So if we imagine that the Zentradi are under orders to capture them, he his intention wasn't to squash him or, or kill him or anything like that, but just... It did a controlled throw with right. his foot. Right, right. So, again, didn't see that, but let's just let's just for argument's sake say that's what happened. Okay? Sure. Still, Rick went flying into these guns. Even if he survived, how is he still conscious? I don't know. It's a uh, <laughs> how many of them were there? Uh, probably half a dozen. Half a dozen of six hundred to seven hundred pound uh, weapons falling on uh, top of him. He found a nook, right? <laughs> so he, these rifles come crashing down. Now, maybe by luck, one of the guns was already in a position, all you know, to, in an aiming position toward the Zentradi. It it happened to fall because think of all these bizarre hunting accidents you hear, where some guy puts the gun down, it falls and shoots the guy. Right. Like yeah. like that's not oh, yeah. that uncommon. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. It would have made more sense if he crashed into the guns and it automatically went off. One of them and discharged, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, but it, the the only thing against that is is we get a clear shot of all the uh, of all the weapons falling down around him and uh and they they're not pointed. And none of them seem to be toward the enemy. Yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. But maybe there was one we didn't see. Or as the camera panned, it shifted and it aimed at the Zentradi, which then gave Rick the idea of, hey, this is already aiming at him. Yeah. Let's, I got an idea. Okay, so we're, we're going to go past that because there's, you know, we, you just have to accept it. Right. If you don't accept it, stop the show right now. Right. Still listen to the podcast 
stop watching the show <laughs> right. and support we'll t- and support us. Yeah, we'll tell you how to. <laughs> we'll tell you what happens. Um, in in intricate detail, by the way. <laughs> but uh, he, I, the thing I like about this is he gets a headshot off. Yes, he does. But he doesn't stop there. No. No, he he does another. I counted sixteen shots. Okay, now sixteen individual pulls of the trigger. No. Okay. No. Because right, it is a pulse rifle of some sort, right? Right. And so you're right. I think he pulls. Let's say what four times? Yeah. Yeah. So it's bra bra, and each pull is a few shots. He just doesn't stop. So he he lights that fool up. I like that instinct. Yeah. It, it's it, let's not especially if we're if we're talking about uh, you know that Frankenstein grunt. Let's not assume the monster's dead. Yeah. Well, it didn't instantly fall. So so here's my little take on it is this. Number one, I don't think those guns are as heavy as a GU-11, okay? Okay. I, I, I believe they're lighter. And I think that, you know, friends, think about, you know, our technology or, or Micronian technology is still very new. So these big guns are big and heavy. It's probably like a... Like the guns that the Vietnamese used in, in Vietnam, you know, those big wooden sofa, heavy, heavy guns, you know? Have you ever held an M16? No, I haven't. Super light, man. Compared? Oh, really? Super light. Okay. Okay. All right. So there's some carbon fiber thing. Yes. You got to imagine these pulse rifles are even more be you know advanced. Of course, they're way huger than an M16, but they they're using some kind of space age technology. They might be pretty light. All right. All right. It, yeah, and I couldn't find any uh any statistics on on how heavy it was uh, only that it was comparable to a gu-11 but that might just be in size and remember a gu-11 is using kinetic rounds i don't know if this is using an energy round yeah that, i believe it is that would make a big difference so what was your take on that whole scene what, what did you think about it uh and well as as, as a kid thought it was amazing thought it was awesome you know what i don't think the headshot really registered with me as a kid and it might be just because i watched too many uh <laughs> too many adult movies at that point um but as an adult you know watching that i was like what was i watching when i was nine um <laughs> 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 And and you know the the size of the rifle uh, obviously comes up, but you know I, I guess what you're saying is is it was made of glass. <laughs> <laughs> yes, now you're coming around, <laughs> and I, I can get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's the only thing that really stuck on my head was. Well, wait a second. How is he able to to maneuver this thing that, you know, just looking at it would be way oversized and and way too heavy? Right, and the kick, you know, the kick. But again, right. if it's an if it's an energy weapon, I don't think energy weapons have a kick. You know, it, it's not that push from a, a kinetic bullet being ejected out anymore. Yeah. Which would which would make a whole lot of sense. It has to for this because I mean, think about it. If that's a round coming out, you know, unless he's braced up against the wall, mm-hmm. which I thought that might have happened, you know, with the, with the butt of the rifle up against the wall. 
but still, like his barrel's bouncing all over the place. It seems like he hit with every shot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First the head, then the chest area. And I think maybe he could he continued to shoot because maybe it was like when that, that headshot scored, but then like uh, remember on on uh, Tombstone when Doc shoots uh, Johnny <laughs> Ringo in the head and he's walking around, he's like, uh, uh, <laughs> you know? yes, absolutely. All right, so we've <laughs> we've we've put that debate to order. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, and it's also amazing he didn't hit Lisa in, in all that too. So throw that in there. <laughs> so Rick runs over to the Fallens and Trotty to help Lisa out of his grasp. Um, she wants to give up. You know, well, it seems that, like her her will's broken at yeah, this point. Okay, right, and and that's what leads me to think like like her depression. She's already battling depression. You know what her face reminds me of? Do you know who Maria or, or is it Maria? Um, she played nurse. Uh, Abby Lockhart in ER, um, eventually Dr. A- uh, Lockhart. And it was also, oh, she yeah. was also, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, you're talking about Maura Tenery uh, yeah, from... Yes. Uh, liar, Liar. She was also the mom. Yeah, yeah, she was in Liar, Liar. Yeah. She has that perpetual worried, sad face. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful face. But it's always got that tinge of, I'm worried about someone else. And I've got this inner struggle that I'm dealing with, but but helping others is what helps me deal with mine. I don't acknowledge mine. I I help others. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a a good way of describing Lisa. I, I think she's got that face, you know. Yes. And you said it perfectly that her will's broken at this point. It, yeah, that's definitely what it seems like. Uh, it, and and. It, it, a little bit of that is me trying to explain why she would wait because she's vulnerable, which is weird um, for Lisa. But at the same time, I I like it um, because it humanizes her. And do you think she's mildly? I don't want to say because how could, I don't even know if one could be mildly suicidal. Okay, mm-hmm. but. She tells Rick to save himself, okay? And this is not the right. first time we've heard her say this. Yeah. Yeah. Different circumstances, though. But 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 still the, the same thing, the same outcome of her coming to a demise, you know? I think she has the assumption that she will die in battle at some point. And that she doesn't want that to cause other people to die, too. So she, I feel like she's come to grips with that idea. Okay, and I, I I can jump on board with that. I I, I really can. I all in, in I think that subconsciously, there's a a pain in her that makes her like not afraid to die. You know that, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. given those situations, it's not scary for her. She's like, no, save yourself. I'm done. You know, again, yeah. more than once, and uh, almost as an order to leave me here. That's deep, man. That's deep. Okay, so Rick is like, no, you know, like, he's going to rescue her. And a weird kind of music starts playing in the background, right? Oh, my God. I'm so glad you caught this. <laughs> like, it was it was more of a upbeat type of music it, that I'm like, wait a minute. Kind of drove me crazy. Where's the sad version of uh, We Will Win, you know? Because this... <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, when she says, 
it, it's over, Rick. I'm done. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they were supposed to play that for a joke, right? Like, like Rick is supposed to assume, oh, no, she's she's sustained, you know, internal injuries and, and she can't move. Her legs are broken or something like that. Uh, but she's really just saying, yeah, I dropped the camera. I, I failed my mission. So I I think the tone was supposed to be kind of jokey, but it just doesn't it, it doesn't land that yeah. way. And the and the music still matches that, but boy, does it not match tone. <laughs> I tried to look up the name of the song because I was like, I hate this song so much. I want to call it out. <laughs> and I couldn't find it. So eventually he extracts Lisa uh, and they leave, right? And then as soon as they leave, we see the feet of Moyes and Trotty in pursuit. Um, so they start running out onto a... Onto the kind of bridge where Han Solo dies. Like a catwalk, right? Is that what they would call right. it? Yeah, yeah. And they're being chased by the guards who start firing at them and blast a hole in the floor, uh, which Rick and Lisa fall down what looks like several hundred feet. At least, right? So, so first of all, apparently the orders have changed from trying to capture them because they're getting shot at all around, you know? Yeah. And so luckily, these, these two, uh, or the, the Zentradi shooting happened to be a couple, uh, a couple of stormtroopers as well, because they don't hit anything. <laughs> and then they fall um, at least far enough to, to hit terminal velocity. Okay, okay. So hear, hear me out on this one, okay? Big Zentradi ship, right? Yes. In outer space. Mm-hmm. So as to not crush themselves... The gravity on the ship is probably way lighter, you know. Brother, you're you're making an you're making a, an argument for why that gun was able to be lifted. <laughs> oh, I didn't even right? realize that. See how awesome I am. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> so, terminal velocity is not the same that it would be on an Earth fall as it is opposed to fall on this ship. Because sure, they did a feather fall. Yes, yes. They, they probably look like gliding squirrels on their way down. <laughs> so then we cut over to Minmay, saying goodbye to Rick in a, a blue-tinted dream. So we get a ghost scene, a ghostly Minmay, right? Yes. She tells Rick bye, and then she appears to be walking. She's, she's uh, like up to her waist in water, right? Yeah, and they do this, uh, they do a creepy thing. I don't know if it's creepy or if it's just me. Just the fact that you don't see your face, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. With that walking away thing. And I'm sure it's meant to look like, yeah, I'm, I'm, you're dead and I can't be with you now kind of thing. But it's it's more like haunting the ring kind of thing to me. It's eerie for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and Rick opens his eyes and sees that he's looking... Uh, well, uh, Rick opens his eyes and we see that he is, um, well, first off, disoriented. Uh, he's wet. I, I, I could clock that right away. Could you? Yes, yes. Uh, they had the, okay. the little in their hair and stuff, yeah. Right, right. And then they pull back and we see he's laying down with uh, Lisa looking down on him. And she seems to be tending to him, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, do you think this is where Lisa started to get feelings for him? Well, if her eyes are any indication, yes. You know, as he's he's laying there helpless, okay? Maybe this is some kind of that that 
nurse syndrome. What, what? The Florence Nightingale. Yes, yes. You know, he's helpless. Um, you know, she and I think she's probably suppressed some kind of stuff for him already. And now in this state where he's not being an asshole, it gives her a chance to study him a bit. She's probably at this point a little bit touched at that point where he pulled her out of that Zentradi grasp. Mm-hmm. And I think this, I think this is the catalyst of where she starts to grab feelings for him. Not a bad point because just piggybacking off of what you said just moments earlier, you know, it's she's kind of seeing him as somebody she can help or be there for. I think it is. I do. So Rick wakes up. Uh, let's see. She, Lisa, uh, she te- Lisa tells him that they appear to be in some kind of reservoir, right? Yes. <laughs> but is that how she said it? Yeah, I, I think so. I, 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 she said we appear to be in some kind of reservoir, though I don't know what the liquid is or something, <laughs> okay. something like that, right? I'm, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying it because she says reservoir. Oh, is that how she said it? Yeah, she said, we appear to be in some kind of reservoir. I'm like, well, all right there. Calm down with your French lessons. Dude, right? Okay. Hey, you know, when someone rolls their R because they can say burrito and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'll have a burrito too, okay? I'm going to have to watch that. I didn't catch it. I didn't catch it. Reservoir. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, Rick's making the point that, well, she must have dragged him out because he sure the hell was unconscious. And uh, Lisa notes how in bad repair it is, you know? Yeah, and, and that that kind of uh, substantiates what Max had realized or what Max had noted uh, when he was outside of the ship, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is just good writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's when things come full circle, you know? Yeah, and uh, she notes that they haven't seen any uh, technicians or maintenance personnel or civilians. And then she says, um, because they're talking about the Zentradi culture, and she says, my father has a saying, only where there is war being waged is there life being lived. What's your interpretation on that? What's your read on that quote? I caught that too, um, and I don't. I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. Um, I, I think it's a. I think it's a super dour way of saying where there is life, there is war. I see, and I've got it reversed. That that you know, what I mean that that you like you, you're not living. You know, if you're not in the heat of battle, if you've not fought the battle or a battle, how could you be alive if you haven't tasted death? I I I hear you. Because that's my original read of it, but yeah, I, I it, that's my read on it this time is is saying like to live is to be at what you know to 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 have life is to be a, in a fight. But they put it in a weird spot. That's what's confusing, you know? I I I would get yes. if 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 they were trying to make a battle cry type of scene out of it, but they're not. And and it's it's a weird I just I don't know. And it's a weird setup to, you know, this entire conversation where they're they're basically going to be, they're trying to preach at this point that war is senseless, right? Well, well I think we've agreed though from the beginning. I I, I, I struggle with that part, and um, 
then Rick goes on to say, you know, like he wonders how many civilizations have been destroyed at the hands of the, the Zentradi. Right. So it's just, it was a weird spot for that particular quote. Okay, so let's think about it. Let's think about Admiral Hayes. What would his view be? Would it be that you're only living if you're fighting? Or to to live is to be at war? I I believe Admiral Hayes is a warmonger. Yeah. That, that's the impression. I mean, his, his own daughter has to refer to him as the Admiral, even at that young, young age. Remember, when she was talking with Reber, they didn't yeah. say my dad. She was like the Admiral, you know? I mean, I get, I get that the title deserves a certain amount of respect and recognition, you know. But I'd have, a, I mean, you know, sometimes my kids call me sir, and, and I'm like, wait, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> It'd be like having your family call you the doctor. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, I say that with my name as an honorific. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, weird, weird, weird quote, weird spot to put it in. A couple of different interpretations you can go with. Um, I think you're right, though. I, I think Admiral Hayes would be saying it in the warmonger kind of way. So Lisa wonders what they want with the SDF-1. Rick thinks uh, there must be something special, you know, about it. Yeah, like it's a one-of-a-kind. Right, right. Lisa, and then Lisa thinks there might be uh, a Robotech device hidden on the ship that they want. Yeah, uh, a Robotech device related to protoculture. Yeah, so she she's starting to put it together, you know? It's funny that she says hidden on the ship, but we've talked about it before. You know, they had... They had junk rooms where Rick and Midmay were were stuck, as as Professor put it in the in the belly of the beast. Going back to Campbell's hero's journey, which is something I completely missed. Uh, of course, they were in the belly of the beast, but you know there there are sections of the ship. It's not that they haven't been checked over and looked over. It's just they haven't been researched as closely as you know the main points, the, huh? the gravity wells and the bridge. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, as massive as it was. There could totally be things that haven't been quite discovered about this ship yet, you know? Yeah, yeah. So then Rick goes into what could be considered preachy is, you know, it's sad to to only know war with the with his entrati, but Lisa's saying that's the only life that she's known. You know, her family's been part of the services for, for hundreds of years, and, and her individually has only known the life in the defense forces, say, for the, for the first 17 years, and... and that little stint with being uh, engaged to Carl Reaver, that jackass. <laughs> <laughs> Had to throw that one in there. Yep. And that even now, she's only thinking about the mission. Yeah. Yeah. And probably feels a little kinship to the Zentradi, you know? Like, like it's not that foreign to her, you know? Yeah. It would actually probably seem like a, not an insult, but, but you know, a little sobering to have somebody say like, yeah, imagine having that life. Right, like, right. Yeah, I can't imagine having that <laughs> life. And so Rick figures that's how she got to the top, right? Yeah, um, and, and explains that figuring any woman who did that uh, got to the top of her class um, must be some type of supergirl. And does a weird hand gesture, kind of rabbit ears, you know, fingers on the side of his head pointing up. <laughs> I don't know what that's supposed to mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I got nothing on it either. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to point it out. Eagle um, Eye viewers will, will have seen the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and if uh, if somebody has an explanation about it, please let us know. You know what it kind of looked like to me? Mm. Was the, the two laser cannons on top of a Veritech. 
Oh yeah, huh? And and I don't know. I I also thought maybe that he was pointing to the you know if he says the top, and so he's pointing up like the top of the ranks. Oh yeah. So let's see. Then then uh, Lisa asks about his girlfriend, right? Yes. And and Rick's like, why why are you asking about her? Right, right. And she says, well, you were you were calling her name, Min 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 Min, and it <laughs> kind of mocks him a little bit. Yeah. I like that Rick's not sure what to say about Min May. Right. And and I really don't think I as a kid I thought it was because he was like, well, I don't want to talk about another girl in front of this girl, you know. But I don't think that's the case here. I think he's really. Look, I don't know what to think about her. She has made it clear that she's not ready to date, but then, you know, obviously she flirts and we see each other all the time. Um, but then she won Miss Macross and and she doesn't have any time for me now. And, and good gravy, if we ever get back to the ship, she will have made her debut and she's probably going to be the toast of the town at this point and have even less time for me. Like, he's really... He's really kind of confused about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it's eating away at him. Yeah, but but originally I thought he was just trying to play it cool in front of another girl. Yeah, I, I agree with you now that it's it's really him expressing his confusion to somebody. Yeah, yeah, and it makes me it makes me feel for him. Yeah, because I'm like, yeah, no, bro, I've been there. <laughs> and he realizes it's going to be worse. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but you know, then Lisa's saying. Well, at least you have somebody to go home to. Then this is where it gets weird. Not weird, like like awkward in the sense of the story, you know? Because then Rick says that she'll find someone and calls her beautiful. Yeah. Like he has no doubt someone as beautiful as her would, you know, would find someone. Yeah. I think it was awkward, and I think that awkwardness is what gives Lisa that that like impetus to be like, well... We'll find out if we ever get back to that ship. Why don't we get the hell out of here? Right. Yeah. But, but okay, so Rick, because looking at her one way, like, I, you know, is he, is he blowing smoke at her, telling her she's beautiful? Or at this point, seeing her vulnerable, being through what they've been through, and stopping and saying, okay, let me look at her through my non-asshole glasses. Right. Wow. She is beautiful. I'll say it this way. I think he sees a smoke show, but I do not think because of because of his thoughts for Min May, and especially since they were just talking about her, I, I just don't think he's viewing her in that way. Yeah, in fact, I feel he I feel he feels comfortable saying she's beautiful because he's not interested. Right, right. No, no. It's definitely, I think at this point, just a compliment, you know. Mm-hmm. But I but I think it surprises him to realize that she is in fact beautiful. Oh, I think yeah, I think you're right. You know, up until this point she's just been that old sourpuss on the bridge that's busted his balls a hundred million times. But now he's just like, man, I've never noticed, but she is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it is the first time he's he's seen it, right? I think so. Because he kind of, you know, like when he says that, it does that thing where it kind of, he gets soft. Like it shows a softer him um, complimenting her, you know? Right. Right. And so then she gets up, offers uh, offers her hand, and they move out. Then we cut over to the spies being briefed by Dolza, right? Mm-hmm. 
He wants them to find out uh, the human's knowledge of Robotech. Rico Conda and, and Braun are, are micronized at this point, wearing uh, sleeveless robes with rope belts. Standard issue, or is that the only thing available? I've got to imagine standard issue, kind of weird, because at first I thought to myself, like, well, what else would they have, you know? Like, there's not too many micronized and trotty running around. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they probably just cut a piece of cloth and say, here you go. But the fact that they have these chambers would lead, lead you to believe that they'd be prepared for this, you know? Yeah, they they should have, yeah, I don't know, Zentradi uniforms. You're right, right. So minor or, or micronized Zentradi uniforms, yeah. Yeah. So so I don't know. I don't know what that's all about. Well, me neither. But they are told that uh, once they return back from their, their mission, they're going to get a battleship. Yeah. And they seem pretty stoked about that, you know? They're like, oh. So they, their eyes light up. Then we go back to Lisa and Rick. Mm-hmm. They've detected a breeze, right? Right. Lisa Lisa feels a breeze and starts to follow it. Separately, Max and Ben are deciding which way to go. So <laughs> Ben licks his finger, checks the air, a gloved finger. Right, right. Um, yeah, he, he can feel it through his finger. But maybe by this point, flight suits, you know how you have uh, touchscreen gloves? Sure. Well, maybe now you've got actual feeling <laughs> in those gloves. <laughs> I think he was just doing it to be a... To be Ben. To be Ben. <laughs> and then says, I don't know, let's go left. Or no, he wants to go right, doesn't he? I, I forget his direction. I think he turns his right, Max is left. Hold on, this is important. Uh, uh, yep, he goes right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, back to, to Rick and Lisa running towards an, an open doorway. Um, excited that they found a way out or, or at least something where there's a breeze. Does that mean that there's an atmosphere on the, what do we call it? The home station, the battle station? Of the, the, the huge Zentradi asteroid ship? Yes. They they come to discover it's a loading dock. Right. Um, And the loading dock door is open. And I believe they're out there in open atmosphere at that point. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things, you know, that I think you have to just go with it. They're in, they're definitely inside a ship, you know. So so yeah. So they're in a ship inside a ship. There's got to be environmental controls. Um, does it create a breeze? Um, I don't know. Maybe that, that's just some strong Zentradi AC, you know. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some kind of atmosphere. Yeah, I, we, I think so. Yeah, yeah. We talked about how how big that that battle station is. Um, it's no moon. It's a battle station. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so they're at a loading dock and they see uh, millions of Zentradi battleship, or at least that's what Rick says, and notes that Earth wouldn't stand a chance against them. Yeah. yeah. And then Lisa makes a, a great point, like, we need to do whatever it takes to prevent war. With Is it what you would naturally come to? Because I, I really do believe it is. I think that's a natural assumption you would come to, like, yeah, we can't hold up against these people. We need to prevent this war at all costs. Right, right. and because ultimately they could hold the Earth hostage, you know? Yeah. Give us this ship or we're blowing it up. Right. What are you going to do? It's just an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's foreshadowing or if it's just what the character would think. And uh, yeah, Rick says they have to get off the ship first, uh, which then Ben and uh, Ben and Max, right? They, they, they mm-hmm. are able to meet up. Yeah, they run up behind them, um, and uh, 
a big, you know, reunited party. Um, Max notices a cruiser looking like it's about to take off, and they all agree to stow on the ship and sneak on. Um, and they do so by jumping on a conveyor of supplies being loaded onto the ship. Right, right. Some kind of train system, right? Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, yep. They make it, and the ship takes off. Oh, boy. Now we cut over to Miria. Um, and I think Azonia briefs her on, on what she's going to do, that she's to deliver the, the spies, right? Right. Right. Well, Miria comes out guns blazing, saying that delivering spies onto the SDF-1 hardly seems like a mission worthy of her services. And then Azonia says, you know, kind of reprimands her, explaining that, hey, this comes from Dolza himself. Uh, the Micronians might be more dangerous than we're led to believe. That already leads to Miria being hardcore, you know? She, she, oh, walks, yeah. she walks in, and she's like, amused, amused. At, I wouldn't even say disappointed, just amused that... This is the mission she's given, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't have been upset if the moment she walked in, we heard "Ooh, Barracuda." <laughs> right. <laughs> As Onia tells her that the orders are from Dolza, mm-hmm. and then they fold. So we go back to Rick and the group wondering how they're going to get off the ship once the fold is complete, and Lisa plans uh, to take a battle pod. Hey. Kind of fast cuts from this point on. Uh, back to Azonia and Miria. Uh, Azonia is planning on how to get the spies aboard, and and Miria just says, "Hey, leave that to me." Yep, I got Again, this. Again, badassery. Mm-hmm. Azonia throws a little bit of caution, okay, and I think that that kind of portends a little bit of future, where she tells uh, uh, Miria, "You may be surprised." Oh, that's true. You know. Because she knows she knows Miria's capabilities, but she has to have been briefed already on 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 the trouble they're having with the Micronians, you know. Right. And depending on exactly how much she knows, she feels it important to tell Miria, "Hey, you may be surprised." Oh, that's a strong point. Yeah, that that that, that caught me. I was like, okay, cool, cool. And then yeah, then the heroes are working on on a uh, on a pod, right, trying to familiarize themselves with it it doesn't at least say something like with three ace pilots like you this should be no <laughs> issue yeah and i believe max has his uh trademark smirk yeah, yeah um so over to the uh what i'll refer to now as uh, the three zentradi spies they're being loaded into a capsule uh by a, a guard who tells them that mirio will be transporting them which they seem super excited about right right so like you mean miria and uh, she's described as one of their best pilots. Mm-hmm. Cut over to Miria climbing into her badass mecha. And uh, Azonia explains from a vid screen that they will draw the enemy away as a distraction. Cut to outside of the ship uh, that's coming out of fold. And Miria launches, carrying the capsules with the three spies. Well, she catches it. That's, and that, uh, to that, that, that was amazing <laughs> to me, too. And, and, and it made perfect sense. Remember, they are super segregated, you know? Right. They they went through every measure to make sure that they don't, like, interact ever. Oh, man. So they yeah. just ejected this capsule. Miria caught it. No need to see each other. No need to interact. Let's get the mission over with mm-hmm. here. So back to Rick and uh, Co. Rick throws a switch, and the machine comes to life, and they realize that they've been discovered. But it's okay, because 
you got Max at the at the gun. At the weapons console. Yeah. Right? Shoots at the guards, clears the way, and then lets out a little salvo and fires a hole in the side of the ship. And the uh, battle pod launches out of it. All while the Robotech theme is playing proudly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it, the music is really like a way of saying, like, don't worry, we're going to get through this, guys. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you, you know, in the in the, the the scary music, you know that it's not going to work out at this point. But once the the theme comes on, it, it's going to play in our hero's favor. Yes. Yeah. So then we see him outside of the ship trying to control it, and uh, also trying to get the communications working. Yes. When suddenly, out of the radio, we hear Min May, right? And they know they're close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because they're not even sure where they fold it, you know? So to hear that is the relief. We're back. And, yeah, that's a good point. You know what? Didn't think about that. They could have folded anywhere in the known universe and unknown universe. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for bringing me around to that. That that was a that was an excellent indicator, and, and it really shows why, why Elisa was so excited at that point. Mm-hmm. We see Miria outmaneuvering the uh, attacking uh, defense force. Yeah, so the, the the first one, she takes one out on its own, right? So mm-hmm. She shoots some missiles, she dodges them, and takes that fool out, and she's not impressed. Okay? Yeah. Then she fires all her weapons, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. yeah we see quite a few Veritex go down. Uh, there's a few surviving that are like, what the hell just happened? And is it Roy? Is it Roy that goes, ah, what was that? <sighs> They all kind of look like Roy to me. Right. <laughs> yes. So I really don't know. I think it was. I think it was Roy. And I kind of like that he, you know, that he had an encounter with Miria. Mm-hmm. One of the only VT pilots that did, that survived it, because it would be Roy, you know. But he was like, holy shit, did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I, I, there goes my head cannon. That was Roy. 100%. Right. Because if it's not, <laughs> he's dead. right he's a red shirt if it's not roy (laughs) so then she heads over to the sdf1 and then punches a hole in the side of the sdf1 just kind of throws the three spies in with a ridiculous whoop sound (laughs) did you hear that i did i did uh they're they're super excited they're ready to see some uh some uh Sports Illustrated uh, swimsuit edition. Nah, I don't think they're going with Maxim. <laughs> and uh, Miria flies off just in time for the final bar of time to be a star. Like her own uh, uh, soundtrack at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and she calls into Azonia to report a mission successful. Back to Rick and company, floating in space. Uh, Electrical expert and all-around man about town, Max, has gotten the radio working. And they uh, they communicate, which is a good thing, because it w- w- wouldn't it have sucked to get shot down by a VT just as you were uh, approaching the SDF-1. It was a big concern I had watching this. <laughs> and I know how it works out, but I'm still like, how are they going to get out of this? But Lisa calls the SDF-1, no response. No response, right? Yeah, and then we see three battleoids surround the ship. And you're like, oh no. Uh, but then they start carrying him towards the SDF-1, and, and luckily we get the explanation from Lisa. Oh, look, they've come to get us. We're going home. And do you notice how big that pod is compared to the three? 
Yes. Pods are big, yo. So I, I said last episode that I wasn't going to listen to the in the next episode. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, except for the very first couple of uh, sentences. And if you listen to it, there's a part where the narrator laughs when he says cat and mouse. And it's just it's hilarious because, it, I don't know, in, in in my head, it's like he's reading it going like, what the hell am I reading? I'll have to. OK, I'll have to. I didn't catch that. And I'll have to listen to how he says it. Yeah, it's funny. It, it almost seems like a flub that happened and they just kept it in. But uh, anyhow, they made it home. They, they're back. A- against all odds. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I've already suspended my disbelief for this uh, a good 50% of this entire episode. I'm rocking with this one. It, this is the most likely situation, and I love it. So what do you rank the episode? Okay, so... We have some good talking back and forth. We have some bad talking back and forth. And by that, I just mean uh, when I was nine, it was boring, and I wanted to get back to the action. Uh, it actually frustrated me. Some weird music, some weird mechanics and, and physics, but I think we've explained that away with a differing gravity field. Overall, Big Escape's going to give me a nine. Nine? Yeah, I'm, I'm giving it a nine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is a feel to it. And maybe that's the the great thing about Robotech. Everything feels like it's building up to something, and every episode feels like it pays it off, but then builds up to even more. Right, right. You know, it doesn't it doesn't rest on its laurels of like, well, we've gotten out of that. Now we're going to spend three more episodes building up uh, to the next resolution. Right, right. And you understand the Zentradi a little bit more, but now there's Miria coming out. You know, the hell is this all about? Yeah, Zonia and Miria, like we're into it and and that that mecca she has you know you sit there and you wonder like okay chiron had a pretty cool mecca you know we see the normal battle pods and then we see chirons and that's cool but it's nothing compared to this no no at least as far as i can tell from these episodes so uh yeah this is this is a strong nine if not 9.5 i i no no it's a nine never mind uh, right, gonna, right, let's right. not get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, what do you uh, what do you rank this? I'm actually going to go with a seven point nine. Seven point nine. Yeah, yeah. And it, and again, it's not that I didn't love the episode. I loved it. Yeah. But man, there was a lot of forgiveness you had to give this thing. You know. Yeah this this one forces you to to accept that it's a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, it all stems from from number one, like the like that the chamber, the, the the shrinking chambers, whatever they called it. Mm-hmm. You know, that was super confusing right there. Right. Um. They they drew a lot of, you, you know, they put place things I think that were in the wrong place as far as explanations. Uh. So it it kind of got hard to follow it. You had to be like, wait, okay, okay, now I think I get it, but it it was piecing it together from front to back. You know. Hmm. And when you say front to back, you mean having watched all 36 episodes of this war and then working backwards. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that that is a lot to ask. But I, I love, you know, that we got a, a good glimpse into Zentradi uh, understandings and you know, a lot, a lot of, of, of their culture and stuff we got a, a glimpse into. The 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 stakes gen- are, are, are definitely up because now we see, see exactly what the Micronians are up against. 
Right. And um, yeah, I mean, again, great episode. Like, like you, when I was younger, um, I thought to myself, okay, where's the, where's the Mecca? I want to, why, why aren't we fighting? You know, I want to see some fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, then, then it, you know, I would get frustrated enough and then there'd be a headshot, you know, and I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, as an adult, you, you kind of understand like, oh, no, I need a rounded out character. I, I can't just have somebody who's, you know, guns are blazing. To a certain extent, that's kind of, you know, if we look at all the characters in this uh, episode, um, Max is the least developed character so far. Right, right. He seems you to know, just be this persona, right? Yeah, like like even Miria at this point is more developed than Max. And she was on the screen for all of like a minute. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, a lot of good insight into um, Zentradi culture and individual people's temperament. Lisa's mindset, Dolza's mindset, uh, even Britai. I don't know. It, it gives us a lot. Who's your MVP? I'm going Dolza. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going with Dolza because he. It's just a, a masterful show of uh, ability to control one's temper. You know, if you were on that ship, you just interrogated these Micronians. You see that they're not individually that the that they're not that big a threat, but you kind of know that overall they're they're a big threat. Um, and that's why you want to keep them contained and we'll figure this out from this point and then find out that they get uh, that they escape. Um, you know, he does show a little bit of respect toward the, towards that, but uh, it doesn't matter. That respect is is like who cares how much respect I give the enemy? I'm still pissed off at everybody else around here who allowed this to happen, but he's able to keep his cool and not be. Uh, and not lose it in you know he, the guy sees the the forest for the trees i guess is what i'm saying yeah i i i have no problems with dolza as an mvp and uh how about you who's your mvp mine i'm gonna have to go with miria yeah you know i have to go with miria in the in the minute and a half of screen time she had she's proven as you so eloquently put her badassery yes he, you know, and and it 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 makes me go, okay, what is this new threat now? What is this? You know, like you said, Robotech is good at that. It it if they would have ended with just the heroes coming back, then you're almost like, okay, now we know more. What's the plan? You know, kind of thing. Whereas now, okay, yeah, they made it back, and what's going to go on? But now there's a new threat. You know, yes. now it's not even dope or a Britai anymore. Now it's Azonia. So what is happening here? And and she makes much more of an impact than than Chiron does even, which, you know, can be blasphemy to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sounds like a, another great episode of uh, Reflex Point. Here we are at the end of another episode. I, I'm, I, I'm hesitant because I just don't want it to end. Uh, anyhow... Uh, thank you guys for listening. I want to thank everybody for the birthday wishes as well. Yes, yes. Thank you guys for uh, contributing to that. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone who sends us uh, messages on Instagram or has sent to our uh, email address. And thank you to everyone just listening. That 
it's super humbling to see those numbers uh, go up. And it just brings me a lot of joy to be able to do this. Yeah. We hope we do you justice. Everybody stay safe. We'll see you next week.